Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Hello, this is Dean Finelli from Politics and Life Science Radio. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we are very excited to talk to Dr. Nuchasm today. Uh, we'll get to Dr. Nuchasm in a few minutes. Uh, first, let's update everyone on some of the hot stories in the life science industry. Uh, AstraZeneca has some very positive data coming out. It looks like they are uh, almost 80% effective in preventing asymptomatic symptoms, excuse me, uh, symptomatic and mild and moderate symptoms of the coronavirus. Uh, so that's certainly positive news. The U.S. is really uh, on a roll when it comes to administering the uh, vaccine. Over 170 million doses have been distributed and about 132 million have people have been vaccinated. So that's certainly good news. The U.S. is averaging about two and a half million shots per day. So uh, really come a long way over the last couple of months uh, in getting this vaccine distributed. But is it too quick? Uh, are we doing this the right way? And we're going to talk to Dr. Uh, Human Nurchasm in a few minutes about uh, his position. Uh, Dr. Nurchasm is a uh, cardiovascular surgeon, immunologist, and a patient advocate. Uh, and he's going to explain to us his positions on uh, how the rollout is going. And, you know, from a science perspective, uh, should are we doing this the right way uh you know when we look think about the vaccine that's obviously the the big story in the life science industry currently uh we're seeing uh women that are pregnant now being uh trials being done to see if it's safe and effective uh in that cohort of people we're also seeing children uh as we know the pfizer vaccine is authorized from people 16 and above uh johnson and johnson and moderna authorized in 18-year-olds and above, and clinical trials are currently underway in the U.S. Uh, in children 12 and above, and we've also seen that Johnson & Johnson is starting in children even younger than that. Uh, so definitely a lot of work, a lot of science going on, but there's still a lot we don't understand about this. Uh, Dr. Nuchasm was uh, featured earlier this week on Fox News, and he described his views on uh, the vaccine. He's definitely pro-vaccine. He's an advocate for vaccines. But, you know, as you know, we're administering this vaccine to tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. Is it, you know, this one size fits all? Does this work? Uh, so we're very excited to talk to Dr. Nuchasm on politics and life science radio. Dr. Nuchasm, thank you for your time today. Thanks very much for having me, Dean. Uh, I appreciate your time. 
Great. So when we think about this, you know, you had mentioned uh, when you appeared on Fox News about your concerns about this one size fits all. And I think it's a really excellent point. You know, we think about kind of we keep hearing herd immunity and just assuming that everyone needs to get this vaccine. But and it does look safe and effective. But to your point, uh, can you expand on that? What's your concern about kind of administering this to so many people in a one size fits all fashion? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, happy to do that. So I'll, I'll start uh, my response to your question, Dean, by saying, you know, I, first of all, um, I know uh, the mechanism of action of this vaccine quite well, and I'm, and I'm quite confident um, personally that, that it's going to be an effective uh, vaccine. It's probably going to be one of the most powerful vaccines we've ever made. You know, I received the Moderna shots myself. My parents received it. And, you know, when the time comes, you know, if the rest of the family need it, um, we'll, we'll, we'll proceed. Um, the, the, the main issue, I think, with, uh, with this, this therapy and, and uh, as with any other uh, medical therapy, is that when we start to think about treating people as a one-size-fits-all and literally just sort of carte blanche applying any medical therapy to everyone indiscriminately, I think inevitably that's where harm is done, you know? And when you think about like how uh, even just the evolution of medicine, um, you know, from 200 years ago when Benjamin Rush was doing bloodletting for treatment of, of any disease to today, where we really do things in a personalized way, everything from our history and physical examination to our diagnostics that we use, medicine is truly personalized because everyone's story is different. And so I think any space where you find like, uh, you know, the, the, the procedure or a practice being indiscriminately sort of applied, uh, I think that, you, you know, you can, you can bet that there's going to be harm done to at least a minority subset of people. Um, you know, if the harm is done to a majority subset of people, then, then, you know, the product goes away, obviously. But usually it's minority subsets of people who are getting harmed uh, while the majority gains some sort of benefit. And that's what the issue is with this vaccine. Now, you know, one of the problems that I, um, see with this vaccine, which is, which is frankly linked to something unprecedented that we're doing in the history of Western vaccine science, is that we are deploying this vaccine en masse in a very rapid fashion um, um, within, within a short span of time, literally in the middle of an outbreak um, where, where, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are already infected, either have occult infections, asymptomatic infections, or have been recently infected. This is a very serious problem, I think. And I think the folks who are having uh, some major adverse reactions to this vaccine are gonna be people who either are actively infected or have had recent infection. So, so that's, that's a really interesting point. So, you know, we see these numbers, about 30 million people have been infected. And I think, you know, at this point, everyone realizes that that's what we know about. It's probably a number that's a lot higher than that from people that have had the, the virus or contracted and not even know, known it. So are, are you suggesting that that people who have had experienced the, the virus and are now getting the vaccines, these are people that are potentially at risk? So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, uh, let, let's let's sort of uh, rewind back to pre-pandemic times. Uh, you, you, you know, you know, and most people know that if you show up to your doctor's office and you say, hey, you know, I have the flu or I have the sniffles or I've had a little bit of a fever, <clears throat> the physician would not offer you a vaccine. And the rationale there is you don't want to make that disease process worse. So so, you know, everyone basically knows that, that, you know, you don't vaccinate people in the middle of, middle of an ongoing infection. That's number one. That's sort of common practice. It's a standard of care in medicine, right? That's number one. Number two, 
Um, you know, uh, the, the other example is, let's say, you know, kid comes in and had uh, chicken pox, right? Uh, no clinician would really offer a kid who had a natural chicken pox infection uh, a chicken pox vaccine too. And, and the reason for that, again, is because the concern is that, number one, it would be unnecessary. Number two, it would potentially be harmful. Now, in terms of the COVID-19 uh, vaccine, I think, I think there, there's plenty of anecdotal evidence right now, level three data, um, uh, on social media platforms and elsewhere. And these aren't Russian bots or, or you know, like some sort of nefarious force trying to contaminate our news space. These are Americans who are reporting their experiences with the vaccine. It seems like there's this general trend towards people who've had the, the infection recently having more intense reactions. Now, aside from that, there was also recently a publication out of uh, Manchester, Manchester, UK, and it was reported in the Telegraph in the United Kingdom, where it seems like the incidence of adverse reactions in people who've been previously infected uh, in the ambulatory setting, so outpatients, right, people who are otherwise healthy, non-hospitalized, non-institutionalized, is about three to four times higher in people who've had the infection before. So when you think about what that is, it means that, you know, the bell-shaped curve of adverse events has shifted to the right, right, for, for people who've been infected. And that means wherever Death Valley lives on that scale, right, the tail end of that adverse event curve for infected people is going to be in Death Valley, you know? So, so people are probably going to experience higher mortality rates from this as well. Now, whether the evidence is going to catch up with us or not, I mean, currently, I'm not even sure the FDA or CDC are really even looking for this because the whole push is to get this vaccine as fast as possible. And I don't disagree with that. I just don't think we should be doing it indiscriminately in everyone. You know, we should be screening for infection and excluding the people who have had recent infections. Yeah, yeah, that's an important point. So is is that the alternative? Because we've known in this country, at least, that diagnostic testing has kind of not been anywhere near where it needs to be or where it needs to be. So is the, you know, we're trying to reach herd immunity. We just keep hearing this. Everyone wants to reach herd immunity. That's the only way we're going to get back to normal. So should we be testing people that come in for their vaccine uh, to see if they if they've had the virus already? Yeah. So, so first of all, with, with respect to the herd immunity thing, uh, Dean, I, I mean, I do think that herd immunity is going to be our way out of this. Now, now, the issue is if you let herd immunity happen with natural infections, the cost of that, right, is that there are two, two major costs to herd immunity. Number one is the mortality cost. So somewhere about half a percent to one percent of people who get naturally infected die. Right. So that's a massive cost to society. Right. And, and personal loss to, to families. Right. So that's not really sort of a tenable option when you're dealing with a pa pandemic virus, right? Because you're talking about millions of deaths, basically, that half a percent to 1% really translates into millions of people dead, right? So, so that's one cost of natural, natural immunity for herd immunity. The second is that every person who gets naturally infected, uh, Dean, every person who gets naturally infected serves as a factory for new variants and new mutants. And, and if, if what that means is the more people get naturally infected, the higher the chances that there are going to be variants that are not only going to be able to bypass the vaccine and escape it, but also may potentially become more virulent, right? And so, you know, look, for, can you imagine a scenario? I mean, how, how, much, how, much, how lucky are we that this virus isn't killing our kids, right? I mean, the, the flu pandemic of 1918 affected children, too. Can you imagine if this virus was killing kids, too? The conversation would be entirely different. And I'll tell you what. It's pure dumb luck that this particular virus is not killing kids, okay? And, and, and it is not outside the realm of possibility for it to mutate 
into a form where it could actually harm kids, right? And so it doesn't make any sense to say, oh, we're going to rely on natural immunity, you know, because natural immunity also means more variants being generated in infected people. So that's why vaccines make sense in this scenario, right? But we have to do it rationally. We can't just say, okay, you know what? We're going to get herd immunity with this vaccine, but we're going to ignore the fact that there's going to be a minority subset of people who have had infections, who are already immune, and we're going we're gonna to just sort of willy-nilly just vaccinate these people, and we're going to just accept the harm to them. I mean, that does, that's not how it works in America. You know, American medicine has never worked that way. You know, we can do better. Yeah, I agree. This is Dean Finelli on Politics and Life Science Radio. I'm talking to Dr. Hunan Nuchasm. Dr. Nuchasm is a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, an immunologist, and a patient advocate. Uh, and we're discussing the, the effects of the virus and the effects of the vaccine. When we well, you mentioned how the effects of we can do better and and how we're treating this. You know, one of the issues I keep thinking a lot is, you know, just from a and I'm not a, a medical doctor, uh, but I keep thinking when we we hear about quarantining healthy people, it's kind of counterintuitive to the way doctors treat people. I mean, typically, you know, when when there's something goes wrong, we kind of quarantine the sick people. We keep the healthy people away from them, but we don't technically quarantine the healthy people. Now here, I certainly understand about asymptomatic transmission, and that was kind of what made this virus a little different. Uh, how do you feel about that aspect of this? Did we, did we handle this, you know, that outside the notwithstanding vaccines, did we handle this the right way uh, with quarantines? Well, I mean, obviously not because it got completely out of control. And but part of that wasn't the quarantines. I mean, the fact is our quarantines were not effective. So, uh, you know, assuming we can believe what the Chinese are saying to us in the press, the Chinese were very effective at doing quarantine and they seemed like they nipped it in the butt right off off the bat. So we, we clearly failed at whatever, you know, um, distancing practices we needed to do. And, and I think part of it is, is that, we, you know, we are a, you know, Western democracy. I mean, people people behave um, as independent agents. And so you can't really force people to do things against their will in America and in Western civilization. Thank God for that. But, but you know, uh, the, the reality is that, you know, when, when that's the case, you know, um, you're not going to be able to quarantine appropriately. So I would say that in, in sort of a perfect world where everyone's perfectly compliant, right, you would, you would quarantine both folks, both the healthy people and the ill people, so that things don't get out of control, then you come up with a vaccine and you vaccinate everyone and then let everyone loose. But, but you know what? People aren't sheep in America, right? I mean, we make our own choices, right? And everyone makes their own choices based on their own understanding, right? And so, no, we didn't handle it right as a society. And as a, at, a, at a policy level, I mean, you know, President Trump's handling of the, of the pandemic on the front end of this thing was a complete disaster, right? I mean, he, you know, it just it was a complete disaster. But then, look, he, he also came up with uh, Operation Warp Speed and gave us the vaccine, right? So, so you know, I think you know we, we got to accept that we're we're sort of a free society, right? And we're not sort of a free society; we are a free society. And so, you know, things are going to take a little bit to work themselves out, right? And so, people's understanding of what what it means to distance and what it means to quarantine and what the vaccine is. I think we got to bear with it. And, and you know, uh, it's unfortunate that half a million people have died. It's really tragic. But, you know, I, I do think it's sort of a function of how our society set up. Dean. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, when you, when you look at this and geographically and geopolitically, you know, China definitely, uh, and I have colleagues that were over there recently, 
that they were quarantined for three weeks, three weeks when they landed in China. And, you know, you think of why it worked so well over there. And as you mentioned, it was they're an authoritarian regime that, you know, could kind of force their people to do what they say and it won't work here. Uh, but, yeah, that's uh, I think there's a lot to think about when, you know, because I don't think this will be the last pandemic. I think we saw swine flu. I think we saw H1N1. You know, we got we've been getting lucky. And as you mentioned earlier, I think we got lucky with this one that it, it did not affect children. Uh, but I want to shift gears a little bit because, you know, we mentioned that there's over 540,000 people that have died uh, from the virus. And, you know, as a cardiothoracic surgeon, you know, we know and you know specifically each year almost 700,000 people die of heart disease. Do you think, you know, if anything comes out of this, do you think we should be treating some, because that should be, if we think of this as, as a pandemic, shouldn't that be a pandemic as well, if that's an annual event? Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, absolutely. And, and I think, I think we, we do think about those disease processes in the same way, but they're not, they're not the same as a pandemic in the sense that a pandemic is something that could actually spread and increase in incidence, right? And so, like, when you think about heart disease, right, so, so you know, heart disease has been going up in America based on our dietary habits, and when our dietary, dietary habits improve, it gets better. But the, if you think about the cyclicity of it and how rapidly the crescendo of the curve, if you will, of rise or, or, or decline, you know, um, that's, um, that's sort of a – you know, those are, those are chronic and stable disease processes. There's no question. There, there are many different epidemics and pandemics, not just infectious disease going on in our, in our country. Like, you know, yesterday, this the tragic shooting in Colorado was yesterday, the day before. You know, look, you, you, you can look at that and say there's an epidemic of gun violence in our country, too, right? And so, and so absolutely, all these things, you know, affect minority subsets of people, and we got to take steps to sort of figure out who the people at risk are and what the causal agents are. But when you talk about a pandemic virus, you're talking about the transmissible um, microbe that can get from one person to another very rapidly and take out a person who's essentially completely healthy otherwise, right? And so, yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's some degree of comp comparability, but, but I think it's, it's definitely a new challenge and there's a, there's a lot of speed and, and shock to it, you know? It's not just like heart disease, which is more of a sort of a stable disease process. Is, is heart disease... Is that those deaths or a lot of those deaths, lifestyle deaths that could be, could they be, is it because of a Western lifestyle? Could we rapidly drop that number if we kind of adapted a, a healthier lifestyle or is, are they more of a congenital type uh, situation? I mean, I would, think so. I would think so. If you, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you close down McDonald's and you, and you reduce the dietary fat and, and, you know, like, uh, you know, get people to drive less, you know, and bike more, you know, things like that would all, uh, without a question affect, uh, affect heart disease. And, and again, I mean, those are, a lot of that stuff's cultural, you know? Um, so this is, you know, uh, compared to the, to the pandemic, the pandemic is something that literally emerged over the span of a couple, a couple of months and has affected millions of people very rapidly, you know? Absolutely. Dr. Nuchesm, thank you so much for your time today. This is Dean Finelli on Politics and Life Science Radio. We had the honor of speaking with Dr. Hunan Nuchasm, a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, immunologist, and patient advocate, providing some really detailed and, and, and critical uh, aspects and, and points on this, uh, the virus and the pandemic. So I greatly appreciate your time today, and thank you for joining us today on Politics and Life Science Radio. Thanks very much, Dean. It's nice being here. 
Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences. 